For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Yo, welcome in to episode 120 of the House of L podcast. I am Lawrence Holmes and... I told you I'm going to put out some midweek stuff, and I've been working on this for about a week to get this episode done. I'm glad that it came together, and it came together in a timely fashion, which allows us to talk about baseball. Baseball is coming back, and so I said I should probably do like a preview episode for House of L. I was like, you know, I know someone that's really smart that's probably dying to get to a microphone. And talk about baseball, who loves baseball as much as I love baseball. So I reached out to Connor McKnight. And I said, hey, man, do you think you could do a preview pod for me? And here's the thing. This is a small media company. Very small. But it is a media company. And I'm capable of occasionally paying people to do work for me. I actually really like it. Whether it was Rick Camp, um, some other people have done some stuff for me that I've paid them for. And I like to pay talent when I can. Now, I could have done a preview. And I like talking baseball. Someone actually literally does pay me to do that. Not that they would be mad. Like, Mitch, I don't think would be mad if I did, like, a preview for House of L as long as I still did Loho Daily and showed up to my show on time on the score. But technically, I'm on vacation right now. Which means that I get to play around with this small company that I run, this small media empire. Ha, 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 that I run. And it's because I have great advertisers like David Hochberg of Team Hochberg, 56david.com. If you are looking to buy a home or refinance a home, you need to call him. When you call him at 855-56-David, 855-56-David, 
tell them that you heard about them on this particular podcast. And be like, Lawrence was singing your praises because I am singing his praises. He helped me buy my place in Kimwood. He helped me buy my home. So I, I owe David a lot. And he has been instrumental in investing in this podcast. So basically, I'm asking you to take care of the people who take care of us. And because David and Team Hochberg have been so generous in sponsoring the podcast, I can then go out and pay talent to do stuff. And that's how we got to where we are. So 56david.com, Homeside Financials, an equal housing lender, NMLS number 1124061. That leads me to an epiphany I had over the weekend. I was like, man, I really want to do something with this. I really want to do a preview now that we know that there's going to be baseball played. And I said, I'd love to talk with someone, but I'd also love to turn the podcast over to someone. I like to let people create. And my hope is that everyone kind of builds their own podcast or maybe at some point House of L becomes like a network for people if if I can handle the business side of it. Lord, please help me. Um, if I can handle the business side of it, then maybe I can create podcasts for people and pay them accordingly for their hard work. So I reached out to Connor and I said, you feel like talking some baseball in front of a microphone? He was like, yep, I sure do. So we talked about terms and everything, and and I said, this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for either a podcast on the Cubs and a podcast on the Sox. You could put them together and make it one podcast preview both teams. He was like, cool. He's like, do you want to be a part of it? I was like, I can be a part of it if you want. I'd be down if if you want. He said, okay, I got a couple ideas. So he was up hanging with his family, and I said, it's not dire. I'd just like to get this thing out before the season starts. He said, let me think of some ideas on how I want this to go. I said, no problem. Get back to me on Sunday. We'll set something up. He told me what he wanted to do for his strategy for this podcast, what he wanted to get in on, and he said, hey, do you want to talk a little bit with me for, for a while? I was like, Absolutely. So that's how we got here. And I'm happy that we got here because I think Connor's really smart. And I think that he's a voice that needs to be heard during baseball season. I know that he loves to talk baseball. So I'm glad that I have a place where he can do that if he so chooses. And I am literally writing him a check right now for his hard work. It's worth it. So I'm going to get out of the way. Although you are going to hear me at the beginning of this talking with Connor. But this is a House of L Presents type deal. Connor McKnight worked his ass off to do this preview for you. And he goes into great detail about both of these teams. So whether you're a Cubs fan or whether you're a White Sox fan, I think you'll enjoy it. Connor and I talk about MLB overall for the first 15 minutes of it. Then he goes right into Cubs. So the Cubs preview is first. The White Sox preview starts at about the 42-minute mark. If you want to fast-forward and go to it, I'm not going to be mad at you. But I would love it if you listen to the whole thing. And I would love it if you tell Connor how great of a job that he did with this podcast. 
So without further ado, House of L presents Connor McKnight's 2020 Major League Baseball Cubs and White Sox preview. First of all, it's good to see you. It is a pleasure to be seen, and it's better to see you once. Oh, well, thank you. That's very nice of you to say. Uh, let me ask you about baseball returning. And I, I'm sure that you were probably fiending for a microphone, as Rakim would say, when we had all of these negotiations that were going on to try and bring baseball back. What was going on in your head while baseball tried to right itself or wrong itself and get itself back into playing mode? I, I guess I guess I was kind of happy that the negotiations and the back and forth and the grossness really was on display as loudly as it was. Because, you know, for a long time, you know, in, in talking baseball and, and having done this for, well, done the old job for about 10 years here in this marketplace, like, I, I think it's been important for baseball fans to understand that their sport is consumed by a fight between billionaires and millionaires. And that there is an inherent power in owning a team and having 30 groups together that own teams banded together in a CBA united by a commissioner that may or may not know what he's doing. Just look at Bud Selig in Milwaukee in 02 and go worse from there. Like this is this is an important part of your sport of baseball, as it is in a lot of other sports. So as the negotiations are going back and forth and ownership is doing all of the things, really major league baseball doing all of the things badly. And players kept saying, when, where, let us play for the agreement we settled on when this whole thing broke down, March 12th, when we stopped camp. When Rob Manfred said the quiet part out loud and said, we never expected anything other than a 60 game season, really, it was, it's done. Like you're, we're there now. If, if, if we were ever going to find a grievance that was going to stick, or at least that I hope would stick in this day and age, it's when you say the quiet part out loud. Now, that's been difficult to stick on a lot of people who keep on saying the quiet part out loud, not in baseball, but in other places. But when you finally have it in a sport that's collectively bargained the way baseball is, I was genuinely, I was actually happy because I thought there it is for once and, and kind of for all, don't you have the level set now? If Major League Baseball as an entity isn't interested in doing anything to play the most baseball games possible. Given the current understanding of the virus at that point, then what are we doing? You know, what's weird about it, Connor? I I was surprised because ordinarily this is a fight that, that ownership is able to win in the court of public opinion. And they didn't this time. I was, I was uh, pleasantly surprised by that. The players, I feel like there is some blame to go on the players towards the end of the negotiation. They got a little greedy and a little sloppy. But overall, I thought that they played this better than I've seen baseball players in particular play it. And I'm not sure if that's a byproduct of more athletes feeling like they have a voice because of the life and times which we are living in. And if it meant that guys like Mike Trout, who you never hear from, were going to say something. The guy that makes the most money in the game 
was going to say something. But I thought that they handled this really, really well. And they kept putting it on the owners and saying, okay, so so you don't want to play more games. So even though even though we'd like to play 114 games, you don't want to play that many games, right? And they just kind of kept volleying it back to them till we got to the truth, as you said, saying the, the, the quiet part out loud of, well, we were always going to do this 60-game thing, so it didn't matter what the negotiations were. I, I think you're right. Um, and I think, too, that the, the players getting greedy toward the end can be, I don't know, explained, I guess, though you don't have to take my explanation for, for gospel. We'll get to that in a second. But you pointed out something that I thought was absolutely hilarious, right? Mike Trout, who says nothing except eat fresh, <laughs> said something about this situation. And if, correct me if I'm wrong, and has said something about our current political climate in saying Black Lives Matter, the way Clayton Kershaw has, the way a lot of baseball players who are not baseball players of color have stood up and spoken for those who need to be spoken for. That's impressive, especially in baseball. And then there's a lot of work to do. Still, I thought it was hilarious that Mike Trout, the guy that Rob Manfred said needed to speak up more, and it was Mike Trout's fault that he wasn't marketing himself more. Mike Trout went full Casey Affleck in Goodwill Hunting and went, How do you like me now, bitch? Like, it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect that finally Mike Trout has something to say. And it is a big two by four across the face of Rod Manford. I, I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. To, to, the, to the baseball players getting greedy, though, Lawrence, I, I think as these negotiations went on, it became, I, I'm sure it became obvious to a lot of people, it became even more obvious to players, I think, who weren't paying attention, who wouldn't, you know, like if you were like a league average, you know, your wins above replacement for, for paying attention to the CBA was like one. Those guys became much more valuable. They increased their attention to the CBA as all this was going on because their paychecks are being directly uh, affected right now, right? So as the negotiations went on, it became painfully obvious that ownership in Major League Baseball were going to try and use coronavirus as a way to break the union over their knee like Bane did Batman and set up the next CBA having already broken your body, right? And I and I don't think players wanted to stand for that. I think that's understandable. And I think in some way you can explain uh, or at least understand their point of view if you take into account that they understood they were set, being set up for body blows when it came to the next CBA because once you change the game now because of a virus, you lay down precedent and made future changes even easier. Look no farther than the Major League Baseball draft. We're only doing five rounds now, and I assume in three seasons there won't be a draft. Mm. You and I will be signed to $10,000 contracts just so they have everyone's rights. I got seven innings left in this body. If, if someone needs get- seven innings, I can catch seven innings, and then I will turn to dust. I, I could throw one or two decent breaking balls, um, all of which will go out of the ballpark, but they'll look good on their way in, and then I'm dead, and then I'm absolutely dead. I bought a mitt this week. What kind? I, I got a Wilson A700. 
Nice. I haven't bought a mitt in forever. And I have like my catcher's mitt downstairs, but I don't just have like a fielder's mitt. I donated it a long time ago. And for some reason, I was like, I should have another mitt. I don't know why. I just decided that I was going to. And I I splurged a little bit and got myself a a, a night. I'm breaking it in as we speak. How? Oh, that's a bitch. Uh, God, God go with you. Um, Are you are you still playing? softball no. often often enough no. i mean i know the like the pandemic's the pandemic and everybody's game got thrown off there but i i think that this is probably like a precursor to me calling my buddy matt lazarado and being like hey your your son's now a high school pitcher how about we go toss the ball around with him and then regretting it immediately like i think that's yeah. what this is setting up for oh yeah so what, did you get like a uh like a 12 inch yeah a 12 and a half or something. Okay. So you could, you could play 12 inch softball with a 12 or 12 and a half. Yeah, I could. I mean, I, I prefer 16 anyway. Yeah. If so, if I were going to play, I'd probably play that, but it was just nice. Like now, even if it's, even if it's me and Mel, like we could actually go outside and play catch if we want. Can I, can I tell you that before, before everything went down and uh, the score got rid of, of, of people, Dan and I were planning something for a leftovers video. And he kind of just called me out of the blue one day, you know, after the show. And I was like, Hey, um, I hope he doesn't mind me telling the story. He's like, Hey, uh, I, cause you know how Dan is. He'll just like start the story at some point. And it's on you to kind of catch up. Like what, what are you talking about? Well, I'll, I'll figure it out later. But he calls me and goes, so I'm really sore. I can't do this anymore. Like, I don't know what you're, are you okay? And Jason, his kid is, you know, prior to the whole pandemic thing starting, he was going to make, I think he was going to make JV ball as a freshman and was going to pitch. Dan had been catching, you know, his kids bullpen sessions. And apparently one day, like his whole lower body just fell off. And his, and his wife had to bring it in off the lawn and sew them back together or something. Like, it got gross. Well, that's the thing so, about baseball. Like, it's such – the muscle groups are very specific, and it's hard to work them if you're not actually training for baseball. So when you nope. jump into some sort of rec league game or you jump into going out there and dropping down to catch 20 pitches from uh, a, a kid that's throwing 80 – you're Bring going it. to feel it like you're going to feel every bit of it and it's going to feel terrible. So, so the leftovers video we were going to do is I was going to catch a bullpen session of Jason's with zero prep and not knowing what he threw. We we're going to, I was going to play it again or something like that and grab some catcher's gear that, that either fit or didn't fit, whichever we thought was funnier. And then I'd, I'd, I'd get in the crouch and catch the bullpen session. And I, I, I really wish we'd, we'd gotten to do that, but it just it just didn't work out. But it would have. It would have probably torn my hamstrings to bits. Oh, there's no doubt about it. And your back yeah. would have been a mess, too, for sure. And your quads would have been a mess. Oh, Awful. I'm starting Awful. to hurt just thinking about it. <laughs> so what do you think of a 60-game schedule? And how, how, should a, how should fans of any team look at a 60-game schedule? So, so one of the things we're going to talk about, or I'm going to talk about a little later here, is that there is every opportunity to push the gas pedal down this season for 27, 
26, 25 baseball teams. The Orioles are trash. The Tigers are trash. Like there are a couple of teams that are just hot garbage. And even they could get super hot and maybe make a playoff game or something like that because baseball is really weird. But in a day and age where ownerships cry poor more often than they spend money and are manipulating service time in a way that is essentially wage theft for players, I, I think it is important to continue, even in a 60-game season, to hold organizations to the standard of winning baseball games. If that's a radical idea, I apologize. They should, they should win damn baseball games. You know what I'm saying? So I think what a 60-game season should do to a franchise as forward-thinking as the Rays to one that is as dodgedly put in tradition as perhaps the White Sox have been at times in their rotation, or as, I don't know, like the Twins were uh, with Joe Kelly. And all, you know, this, these things can change, right? And I, I think the, there's no bigger driving force to change than a baseball season of 60 games where no one has any idea what the hell is really going to happen. So try some stuff. Be aggressive. Find opportunities where you can take skill sets of players and because the stretch is so quick, six off days in 66 days, like that's ridiculous because that turnaround is so quick. You need as many skill sets as you can applied to as many opponent skill sets as you can to try and make this work and win as, win as many games possible. Because the margins now, I was just reading Jason Stark's piece in The Athletic from, I can't remember if posted it last night or uh, this morning. A win is worth 2.7 wins. A win is as valuable as three wins in a regular season. If you get swept, it might be done. If you start four and eight, that's the ball game. Like, this is insanity multiplied by three. And I think it's on every front office to be as, you know, aggressive, not in-game, not with like a whole bunch of hits and runs and stolen bases and all that nonsense, but as aggressive with roster decisions and manipulation as possible. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it. It's weird. And I, I was talking about this once we got close, like close to the commissioner doing his thing. I'm I'm excited. Like I was excited this past weekend watching the Cubs and the White Sox play against each other instead of just the intra squad games. There is still the bad taste in my mouth from the negotiation aspect of it. It'll go away on Friday. Like I'm, I'm actually going to yeah. be at the ballpark on Friday. It'll go away. But there is, there is something that I'm like, there's a, there was a darkness to this that is going to be hard for baseball to shake. The good thing for them is that they have the excitement of here's 60 games. Almost everybody is in it. Almost everybody can win this thing. With a, I mean, think about where where the Nationals were. What were they, nineteen and thirty one in their first fifty games last season? Right. So you can see a team fall apart, and you could see a team get hot, like the Cubs getting off to a twenty five and six start a couple years ago. You get off to a twenty five and six start, that's probably the end. Like that's you can pretty much just mark it down that you're going to the playoffs. That, that should have been the end for the 16 White Sox. And then they played some of the worst baseball you could possibly dream yeah. up. Believe me, I was there. Like, all they had to do was play 500 baseball That's the rest of the way. That's all they had to do. 
That's 500 all they baseball. had to do. Just just be 500 baseball and don't play JB Shuck a lot. And oh, they, they just how dare you? They just couldn't. How dare you bring up his name? All right. Well, look, I'm gonna get out the way, man. This is your preview, so I'm gonna let right. you do the preview. Do do your thing. I'm gonna throw down the headphones and and uh, do the thing that makes you Connor McKnight. Thanks, man. I appreciate the opportunity. We're going to dive into the Cubs. We're going to dive into the White Sox. It's going to get real. It's going to get goofy. There's going to be baseball. I hope you have fun with it. Hey, this is Connor McKnight, and you're listening to my MLB preview episode for the House of L podcast. Appreciate you being here. We're going to go through the Cubs. We're going to go through the White Sox. We're going to have some fun. Let's get to it. So, although the 2020 season will feel like nothing before it, I think that the title at the end is just as valuable because of the season's inherent strangeness, right? I, I can't stand the idea that saying this year's eventual champion will have a yeah, but tacked onto their trophy because of the pandemic. Yeah, but. Are you, are you kidding me? To me, it feels like yes and. Like, can you believe the White Sox won the World Series in 2020? Yes. And they did it when exactly zero teams have ever tried to prep for a season like this before. Ever. Or, or, or can you believe the Cubs won the 2020 season? Yes. And... They were able to manage player health in a way no team has ever done before. Those are the types of add-ons I expect after the season ends, if it, if it does end with a World Series. Whoever walks away from this season winning the last game of the year will have navigated untold health risks and logistics, unwieldy player management restraints, and of course, gotten lucky in a way every team that's ever won it has. At least in that last little bit, there's baseball as it's always been played. I don't know how you feel about all the storylines and quotes and trades and contract extensions and television deals that preceded the cancellation of spring training. But for me, in most ways, stuff like the Cubs negotiation with Comcast or the White Sox extending Yohan Mankata or the Cubs holding on to Chris Bryant or even the, even the White Sox signing Yasmani Grandal seemed forever ago. Ancient history. More like side notes to a season to be than true headlines. But once games get going, and baseball fans reclaim a little bit of normal, if that's even possible, those headlines will be thrown back into the mix and folded into whatever craziness a 60-game schedule can whip up. If you remember all those headlines, though, they point out how both teams are clearly in different places of the contention cycle. The White Sox added the best catcher in the game. They inked a whole host of players to extensions and even added in a spot or two, to help reinforce their depth, which has been an issue for them for years now, while going through to reinforce their depth while going through the expected growing pains of a, of a talented but young roster. You know what I mean? The Cubs, meanwhile, were swimming in a sea of change, having said goodbye to Joe Madden, firing Joe Madden, seriously flirting with trading their tra- franchise player, Chris Bryant, and having all kinds of trouble adding to a large payroll despite the seeming unlimited wealth of the organization. From those perspectives, you could pretty easily draw a line for each team headed to somewhere around the 500 mark, albeit those lines heading in opposite directions, the Cubs perhaps down and the White Sox up. I believe in holding organizations to winning ballgames, though. For me, the shine is off the tank. Moneyball era has been transmogrified into the StatCast, Rapsodo, player development era, and because of that, 
things like player rebound and reclamation feel like they're just a pitch lab session away. Baseball teams should win baseball games whenever possible. Because of all of that, I can't stop thinking about what it would mean for each team, the Cubs and the White Sox, to really put the gas pedal down, to truly push all in on a madcap dash to the end, warts be damned. I get that the White Sox are young, and they need development and are still building a bullpen, but the hell with it. It's 60 games. They're talented enough. I get that the Cubs haven't had a consistent offense since Bryant threw it to Rizzo in Cleveland, and that their bullpen's upside may be a modestly contained dumpster fire. The hell with it. They're talented enough. But talented enough doesn't win titles. It gets you close. It may even punch a ticket to the playoffs. Talented enough, plus luck, plus health, plus, in my mind, tossing convention aside in a season that's begging for exactly that wins. That's what I think. And that's the part that's got me really stewing heading into all of this. What conventions can be tossed aside by each team? What kinds of barnacles that so easily attach themselves to a 162-game season can be scraped off the ship to make it more efficient, to make it faster? What kinds of things might be impossible to do during 162 games but might be worth it for 60? I got a few ideas for each team that I want to get into. I'm going to flip a coin right here as I'm sitting uh, doing the pod, and that'll decide who's first. Heads, it's Cubs. Tails, it's the White Sox. Here we go. Ready? Heads. It's the Cubs. All right, it's the Cubs. So if you don't care about them, check the notes on the podcast and fast forward to the part on the White Sox. I'm sure Lawrence will be nice enough to write in when I get to the White Sox. So if you want to listen to them, skip the Cubs part. I don't care. It's fine. It's, it's like a choose-your-own-adventure podcast without the reading and that there's only one choice. Okay, bad analogy. Let's get into the Cubs. There's three pieces to the 2020 Cubs season I'm going to get into here. One is Jason Hayward. The other is the DH spot. And the third is just how paper-thin their pitching feels. As of this recording, it sounds like Jose Quintana is going to miss a significant portion of the 60-game schedule. So that paper-thinness gets even paper-thinnier. That's a thing. Whatever. It's bad. They don't have a lot of pitching. When it comes to the question, how can the Cubs win the 2020 season, it's clear that there are more solutions through the offense than through the arms, even if that offense has been maddening for a good long while. With this offense, though, I want to go back before we head into 2020. On December 15th of 2015, Jason Hayward was signed to be the starting right fielder for the 2016 Cubs, and a promise was delivered on. I really hope that you've read Jeff Passan's book, The Arm. If you haven't, go out and buy it as soon as you're done listening to this. Actually, actually buy it after you've downloaded all the House of L episodes and then rated them all five stars. Then go buy the book and read the book. Anyway, the book, the arm, Passon's book, it spends a full chapter detailing the Cubs courting of then-free agent starter John Lester. Heading into the 2015 season, Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer were selling Lester on the team's desire to add Hayward, so the story goes, for the 2016 season. Hayward, of course, spent 2015 with the Cardinals, put up a 121 weighted runs created plus and a 1080 OPS against the Cubs in the NLDS. But you knew all that and all's well, all's well, it ends well. So exactly one year later to the day of signing Lester, the Cubs signed Hayward to an eight-year deal for $184 million. So two years after the sit-down with Lester, plus one 17-minute rain delay later, 
the Cubs had their first World Series title in 108 years. Again, all's well that ends well. Flags fly forever, but there's no denying that Hayward has been bad at the plate since signing with the Cubs. There have been injuries, mechanical tweaks, and spirals, brief moments of competence, bad luck, one killer rah-rah speech, but, but he's, he's been bad. He's been even worse than that against lefties, and in 2019 posted a 45 weighted runs created plus against them. That's 44 points worse than his career average against lefties. It's 28 points worse than Tony Kemp hit against lefties last year. That's very bad. In a 60-game in a season, the Cubs can't afford their usual off-kilter offense. They, they just can't. They need Bryant and Rizzo and Baez to hit all at the same time, or at least mostly, It is baseball, after all, and weird things happen and guys go cold. The problem is inconsistency has been the constant for the Cubs. And in order to mitigate that over a 60-game stretch, I think the Cubs are going to have to do something a little distasteful. They have to sit Jason Hayward against lefties. Full stop. To David Ross's credit, he seems to be setting the stage for exactly that. It, It sounds to me like Hayward has been being prepped to be a platoon player. And not surprisingly, Hayward is accepting the new reality. Given all the crap he's put up with from Cubs fans, it's, it's pretty incredible he remains the quality guy he is. I will never truly understand fans blaming a player for a big contract. It's not the player's fault he signed it. It's been his goal to sign that deal since he's eight. It's the team that gave it to him. And outside of Gil Mesh, there aren't a lot of guys handing back generational wealth after working as hard as you have to to get a check for $184 million. It's a bit of a sidetrack there, but the point is the Cubs gave it to him. Mission accomplished. World Series won. Curse busted. Back to 2020. I don't believe that there is any such thing as convention in a 60-game season. And I guess that if the 2020 Cubs were to play all 162, David Ross would want to see Hayward get at bats against lefties. And See if he can work some things out and stay respectable in those matchups. Hayward's just about to turn 31, after all, and we live in an era where players well north of 30 can sometimes find a mechanical tweak through better technology and fix the little quirk in their game. I'm not saying I'd bet on that for Hayward, but over 162 games, that's a, that's a reasonable play, especially considering his still-plus defense. Over 60 games, not so much. So whether it's Steven Souza getting run against lefties or Chris Bryant getting shifted into the outfield in those games or some other mix of Albert Almora or Ian Happ or even Nico Horner getting run out there because Ross has lost his mind or Jason Kipnis catches fire or whatever, it's a lot better on the roster than a 45-weighted runs created plus, even if Tony Kemp isn't on the squad anymore. So let's get to the offense, the rest of it. The offense that's going to rely heavily on the top tier of Anthony Rizzo, Chris Bryant, and Javier Baez. And then the second, but also very solid tier of Wilson Contreras and Kyle Schwarber. Then, to me, for 2020, it's a large bag of, well, we'll see. So that brings me around to the brand new toy in the National League that teams have at their disposal this year. The designated hitter. It's not brand new. Interleague play has been around a long damn time now. We've seen the writing on the wall for the last decade, for sure. But even if we saw it coming and anticipated Kyle Schwarber getting a whole bunch of work at the brand new spot, I have to ask, is Kyle Schwarber really the best choice to DH? I feel bad taking you to hot takeville, and I'm not doing it because I've spent four months on the bench 
and I want to get back into it with one swing. First of all, it doesn't work like that. Second, I I could be wrong here, like really wrong. But let me just wonder at something for a second. Is Kyle Schwarber really the best DH for the Cubs? The moment Daniel Vogelbach was traded, Kyle Schwarber was enshrined by everyone outside the organization as the Cubs' first DH once the NL finally kicked the past and stopped the nonsense of pitchers hitting. Within the organization, however, Schwarber was still rehabbing a knee injury, one that kept him out of nearly all of 2016, save four games in Cleveland at the end of the year, which went well for him. After those four games, some Cubs exec called him Babe Effing Ruth, and since then it's been a tormented trip trying to evaluate Schwarber's ceiling. It, it just has. I'm not asking if he's the best DH because of Schwarber's offense, though. I'm actually in on Kyle Schwarber having found his level, and more often than not, being the hitter that put up a 151 rated, weighted runs created plus in the second half of last season. I'm not saying he's exactly that guy from here on out. That would make him like a top 10 hitter. Just that I believe in the changes that turned up the production and, and in his ability to repeat that kind of approach, to, to be a lot better. And obviously that had helped the Cubs for more than just the 2020 season. Instead, the reason I'm wondering whether Schwarber is the guy to spend most of the season DHing is defense, really. If you look at StatCast's outs above average rating, or, or anything else really, Schwarber was not very good in left field last year. I still maintain that for outfielders, especially bad ones, who have a certain level of athleticism, and believe me, Schwarber does. He played high school football, he was a catcher. There's such a thing as ball skills. Like a receiver, when they're close to a catchable ball, the ability to then go get the catchable ball, in my mind, is a different skill set, or at least a separate one, from the route you take to get there, your ability to read that route, your ability to diagnose that route and go get it, right? If it was hit towards Schwarber, he was pretty okay at making a play. It's getting to the ball that wasn't really hit towards Schwarber that seemed to give him a whole lot of trouble. Anyway, Stoutcast's outs above average rating has him at minus nine outs above average in left. It's the seventh worst mark of any qualified left fielder in baseball. Shinsu Chu, Dwight Smith Jr., Tommy Pham, Eloy Jimenez, Andrew Benintendi, and Eddie Rosario are the only dudes with a worse number. Ryan Braun was better than Schwarber was last year in left by one run. But Braun has been a statue for two years and a damn liar for about nine. I guess that's beside the point. Schwarber isn't very good in left. There's a trend in the league, it seems, too. More teams are moving better defenders into left field. It used to be the place where you throw the guy to pick dandelions, right? But it's not anymore. Fangraphs has thought about this a little bit. Most hitters are right-handed, and more guys are pulling the ball so as to get lift and hit dingers. That could just mean the left fielder has to be better in the eyes of a lot of front offices. If you look around the league, the average sprint speed of left fielders is about the same as the average sprint speed at shortstop. To me, that's proof that there are better athletes out there in left right now, and that's a choice being made by front offices. Hell, Cody Bellinger is moving to left, and so is Christian Yelich. There are reasons for that, like Mookie Betts and Bellinger's is, but those are superior players moving from right to left. Still, even if that is a trend, the Cubs don't have a Yelich or Bellinger to move into left. They've got guys like Almora and Souza and Happ, and none of them 
hit like Schwarber, at least not right now. And none of them are all that great in the outfield, with the exception of Almora, but then again, he doesn't hit at all. Schwarber's only 27, and yeah, he's big-boned with a severe knee injury in his past, but he's only 27. There's only so much time the Cubs are going to be able to get his peak athleticism into the outfield in the first place. And I'm among those who fully expect in the new CBA, if there is a new CBA, that it'll include a DH for the National League. So it's not like this coming year is an expiring offer with the ability to hit Schwarber and only hit Schwarber. So so what if the Cubs trot out a bad left fielder who mashes? Plenty of teams have won plenty of games with that kind of setup, even if it's something this league is slowly moving away from. There's more, though. I'm not just moving Kyle Schwarber back into the outfield without a replacement. The reasoning for that is defense, too. Well, run prevention, more accurately. I'm wondering if putting the gas pedal down, saying the hell with convention, and in this case, admitting a loss of a bit of player development in order to win more games, doesn't point to Wilson Contreras being the best DH for the 2020 Cubs. Here's my point. Contreras is a terrible pitch framer. Just not good at all. Of the 64 qualified pitch framers on Baseball Savant's website, Contreras ranks 45th. That's bottom third. Fangraphs paints a more dire picture by ranking him the fourth worst framer to have caught at least 350 innings last year. And this isn't new. The Cubs been working to make a better framer of Contreras since he got to the big leagues. He rebounded from a spectacularly bad framing year in 2018, but isn't much better than what he showed in 2017. I think Contreras has all the skill sets and athleticism to be one of the best catchers, hell, the best catcher in the game once robot umpires get put into play, but we're not there yet. StatCast tracked 254 attempts for Kyle Schwarber in left field last year. That's 254 chances to pull one in he shouldn't have gotten to, or faceplant coming in on a ball he should have held up on. Mistakes like that in left usually cost a base or two. I get that. They cost runs when there's men on. I get that. I really do. But 254 chances across, let's see, Schwarber played 140 games in left. That's the math. Wilson Contreras caught 318 pitches from Cubs pitchers in just the first two games of 2019. To me, that's larger math. It it might be I'm crazy. It's possible. I definitely have a bias about keeping good hitters at catchers uh, at, at catcher because I'm, I'm terrified of what it does to their knees and their power and their overall longevity if I ran a team and thank god I don't I would take every middling catcher defensively who has a good plate approach and some power and I would try him somewhere else as soon as high a ball anywhere else doesn't matter probably wouldn't work out for me but that's how I've been thinking for a while now and, and I say this knowing full well what an advantage having a good hitting catcher has been for NL teams in the past it's huge Even that advantage seems lessened to me because everybody has a DH this year. If you've read Sahad of Sharma's latest for The Athletic, you'll know that the Cubs are very high on the work Contreras has done with new catching coach Craig Driver. Driver helped guys like Jorge Alfaro and JT Ramuto improve their framing numbers by a massive amount, and that sounds good. But remember, we're trying to look for places to buck convention and put the pedal through the floor in 2020, and I think this is one of them. I think sacrificing Contreras' pitch-framing development for the next 60 games is worth the gain. It allows Victor Caratini to step in and play full-time. If Caratini blossoms as many believe he can, that gives the Cubs more depth or even a fortified trade piece in the winter or before August 31st if the season goes horribly wrong for the team. That means for the low, low price 
of having the same below-average left fielder who mashes that the Cubs have had out there for 92, 94, and 84 win seasons in the last three years, you could potentially increase the level of production for something like 12 pitchers or however many they're going to use in this messed up season. And I think that's worth talking about. Plus, there's this. It looks like the Cubs will need every bit of edge to keep them competitive from a pitching standpoint. John Lester has already written off the people who have written him off, and that usually doesn't happen until after the All-Star break. And like I mentioned off the top, Jose Quintana probably won't figure for more than a few starts, if that. Kyle Hendricks, the opening day starter, is a right-hander who lives below 90 miles an hour and has relied on top-tier defenses to produce his top-tier results. I'm not saying he's a bad pitcher. It's just that you need a defense to help you out when you live like that. You Darvish is as electric as they get, and while a lot of smart people like him as a Dark Horse Cy Young candidate or, or even a favorite to win the Cy Young, hell, I, I don't know many who are willing to bet on it. Some, you know some, but not many. Still with only 60 games and less chance of blowing out a starter, or conversely, the ability to ride a hot streak by maybe getting an extra start here or there for whatever guy gets warm, it's not the first few innings that have me worked up when it comes to the Cubs. It's the last few talked a lot already about the importance of pitch framing once it hits the mitt, but there's nothing Wilson Contreras or Victor Caratini or Josh Fegley, Josh Fegley's on the roster, or David Ross can do if the pitch never gets to the mitt, if it gets put in the seats. In 20 and two-thirds innings last season, Craig Kimbrell gave up 21 hits and nine of them were home runs. No Cubs fan needs to relive that horror. Kimbrell certainly doesn't. Through summer camp, though, there's been more than a few long balls hit off Kimbrell. David Ross has downplayed it and told the few masked-up reporters at the park that it's par for the course, that this just, you know, happens. The Cubs have good hitters, after all. But 2020 was supposed to be a comeback year for Kimbrell. His walk rate, which has always been a little high, stayed about 12.5% last season, while his strikeout rate went down again. And after having to wait until June 7th to sign last year, this was supposed to have been a normal spring, a normal build-up to a season for the Cubs closer. Now, clearly, that didn't happen. On the flip side, no one gets a normal run up to the 2020 season, so he's in the same boat as everyone else. Kimbrell's situation, the, the whole Cubs bullpen situation, reminds me a little bit of covering Ozzie Guillen back in 2010. The White Sox bullpen at that point still had Bobby Jenks as the closer, and he wasn't all that good, but with guys like J.J. Putz, Matt Thornton, Sergio Santos, and Scott Linebrink all pitching pretty well for stretches, Ozzie was getting asked over and over about moving Jenks out of the closer's role. Maybe Putz, maybe Thornton, maybe Santos. I think all of them got a chance to save games at one point that year. Anyway, Guillen would tell reporters that the bullpen was better if Jenks was closing and getting the final three outs. At the time, I thought it was a manager giving the benefit of the doubt to a clubhouse favorite and a franchise darling, which could be understood, sort of. I mean, really, you kind of get that. What I realized later is that, in a way, Ozzy was trying to hide a subpar Jenks in the ninth inning. If Jenks could get a clean ninth, he was still good enough to work himself out of that inning, Ozzie figured, more times than not. In order to get to that clean ninth inning for Jenks, or in this case for Kimbrell, you need two things to happen. One is you need the lead, obviously. Two, you need the rest of the bullpen to be as versatile as possible. You need to be able to put in a strikeout monster in a tough spot in the sixth. You need to be able to go to a lefty for a tough platoon matchup in the seventh. You need versatility, and that's what Ozzy was getting at, I think. The math changes a bit with the three-batter minimum in place for the first time in 2020, but David Ross's challenge seems bigger every day in this regard. 
He's got to maneuver some middling bullpen pieces into the right spots. Leave them there for three batters and hope they get the job done so that his Hall of Fame closer, who's not what he once was, can start the ninth with no one on. It sounds like Ross is leaning heavily on the Cubs' nerdery. It sounds like Ross is leaning heavily on the Cubs' nerdery for the math on matchups. And that's a good thing. I've really liked reading some of the quotes from Cubs reporters about Ross's use of some of the math guys in, in the front office. Bullpen management to me is the most crucial in-game skill for a manager to master. Getting as much data as possible seems totally necessary. Since he's a former catcher with a stellar reputation for handling pitchers, I, I don't doubt that that'll translate to Ross working with pitchers as a manager. He has the cred. But I'll be honest here. I don't have an answer for Ross's problem. He's got guys like Jeremy Jeffress, Ryan Tapera, Casey Sadler, Dwayne Underwood, who are going to have to provide those answers for him. The whole point of this podcast is to point out where a team could put the gas pedal down. For this, though, there may not be one. I was reading something Jason Stark wrote the other day, and it hit me hard when thinking about the Cubs pen. He's writing about the latest fan graph projections that have 17 teams winning something between 30 and 33 games. That'd be a hell of a log jam at the end of the year. He then mentioned that projection to an AL executive who had some pretty serious bullpen issues last year. Here's what the exec told Stark in The Athletic. Say your closer has a bad week. They all have one. He gives up a bomb one night. He can't find the plate the next night. It's a bad break. Somebody doesn't make a plate the night after that. Is somebody going to get demoted out of the ninth inning based on three games? That'll definitely happen because it won't feel like three games. It'll feel like ten games. That's an AL executive talking to Jason Stark. If he's feeling that, I promise you David Ross will feel that. And unless there's some sort of ungodly rebound from a guy like Jeffress or Rowan Wick making the leap, unless there's some sort of ungodly rebound from a guy like Jeffress or Rowan Wick makes the leap, some think he can, or Dylan Maples finally ends up locating the strike zone, I don't think the Cubs' best option is to swap out Kimbrel the way this executive is laying out. It could be that's absolutely the course other teams will take with, with other bullpens. And that could be possible for them in a 60-game season if you're just, you know, better. But from where I sit, it might be that sliding pieces around prior to the ninth and pushing all in on Kimbrel getting the ball with the bases empty is the best way for the Cubs to work relievers this year. Okay, so let's get to the White Sox. First, I'll say this. I love the White Sox heading into the season. I love the White Sox heading into all the weirdness of 2020 so much that when I heard Michael Kopech was sitting out the season, I only spent one, maybe two days in mourning. Don't get me wrong. It is absolutely his right to pass on playing, and I'll throw hands with anyone who says otherwise. It's disappointing, sure. I, I just I love the idea of the White Sox using Kopech in a long stretch bullpen roll. Coming off of Tommy John, being able to manipulate his innings while also finding pockets of hitters that he's best suited to face given his current stuff and level of comfort on, on a daily basis seemed like the perfect situation. Perfect for the organization's top pitching prospect. Yeah, just saying all of that gets me down again. I'm sorry if I took you there, too. Thing is, this isn't MLB The Show or Out of the Park Baseball or whatever other simulation you want to make it. Baseball players are human, and despite all of us forgetting that from about 2003 to 2015, myself included, 
I get that the uncertainty of a plan like that, like the one I just outlined, might have created in a talented kid who's just turned 24 and already has a complicated injury history a bit of a bit of unrest. Hell, even if the White Sox had declared from minute one of the new 60-game agreement that Michael Kopech could just look at the new schedule and point out any game he wants to start and make it his, even if that were the case, I would understand his hesitation about splitting spring training into summer camp and potentially not understanding how his body would handle the accelerated ramp up that was summer camp to a crazy sprint of a season. You add in a pandemic that's shaken everyone and provided all sorts of new horrors to think about and and not just how those things might affect a healthy prime as like 24 year old professional athlete but how those things affect those around him and maybe the large responsibility to the greater good and I don't know, maybe I'm projecting a little bit there. I apologize if I am. Either way, baseball reasons alone, I really do understand Kopech's call to not play. It brings me, though, to one way I think the White Sox should try and smash the gas pedal down on 2020 and blow past any restrictor plate labeled they're too young to win. I think they should go with three starters. I think, like the Rays before them and other teams too, they ought to say the hell with convention In our tradition, the past 300-some years, Don Cooper has been the pitching coach, preaching White Sox starters have a job to stay in the game as long as possible and take the ball every fifth day. I'm not saying that was necessarily wrong in the past either. It's worked, and Coop's resume speaks for itself. And if you don't think the resume speaks, Coop will. Just ask him. Lucas Giolito, Dallas Keuchel, and Dylan Cease would be the only three traditional starters if I were drawing things up. I'll back it up and tell you why. 2019 saw the White Sox bullpen provide the 15th most wins above replacement in baseball. That's F4 if you're keeping track. That is exactly average. It was middle of the road. 14 teams were higher. 14 teams were lower. They were the middle. That's with Alex Colomay outperforming his 4.08 FIP by posting a 164 ERA+. plus. That's insane. And that's with Evan Marshall pulling a similar trick well, he had a 430 FIP and a 185 ERA+. plus. Those are tough performances to repeat. There's a lot of space between those numbers. I'm as, as, I'm as encouraged as anyone by Aaron Bummer's work in 2019 and that the White Sox now have the ageless Steve Ciszek. He might just be ageless. But there's a lot that needs improvement in the Sox pen, all while hoping for those outpaced for performances by Colome and Marshall stick. Jace Fry cannot walk seven per nine in 2020. Kelvin Herrera can't throw as many home runs as he did in 2019. Thank God Manny Banuelos isn't a thing anymore. But given the defensive issues that are likely to crop up for the White Sox, more on that in a few, they'll need their best stuff, guys, to be put into the best situations for that stuff. I think most teams will become more aggressive with pulling starters and going to carefully planned bullpen work this season but I think the White Sox are suited to add in another element. They've got guys like Gio Gonzalez, Jimmy Cordero, even Carlos Rodon to add into the pen this year. I like the opener in a season of 60 games. I like tandem starts. I like a mix of relievers with varied release points so that opposing hitters don't get comfortable. I think shunting as many top-tier stuff guys into, you know, I, I don't even want to say bullpen rolls here. I think even that term is falling out of relevancy in baseball, even without a 60-game season on the horizon. So I'll just say non-starter roles. 
Also, I know a lot of White Sox fans and writers and thinkers and whatnot have pondered at the idea of using Dylan Cease in a non-starter role, too. That'd mean if we stayed with my idea of three nominal starters, someone like Gio Gonzalez or Reynaldo Lopez gets moved into a starter spot. And I understand the impulse of putting Cease into a more manageable position by facing shorter bursts of hitters with the stuff he's got, but this is one place where I think the White Sox should show just a little bit of, I don't know, traditional patience, I guess. At this point, I think I should probably tell you that I am a bit of a Cease apostle. I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. In his first spring training with the White Sox, and a few months after they traded for him, I was wandering around the backfields. If you've been out to Camelback Ranch, you know the setup. There's a windy path from the main facility and clubhouse that takes you under a footbridge and up a little hill to the two main fields. On the right is the big league field, and on the left is where the top-tier minor leaguers work out. If you continue on that path, about 100 yards or so, maybe less, just behind left field of the big league diamond, there's a long row of pitchers bounce. There'll be five, six, or seven guys working at one time during spring training, and the noise is one of the best things on the planet. You can hear the consecutive pop, pop, pop of each guy firing into the catcher in succession. It's awesome. I love it. So I'm walking back there one day, and that's what's going on. A bunch of guys throwing while the position players are stretching out, getting ready for the day. And as I'm making my way up to the windy path, and well before I could see who was throwing, I hear pop, pop, pop out on the pitching mounts. Two pops and one different third pop, a pop unlike other pops. The kind of sound scouts swear happen when only special players hit it right on the button or flamethrowing gods hit the catcher's mitt just right. Sure enough, a different sound was Dylan Cease, and I have been unable to quit the guy since. He's special. I guess all of that is to admit that the White Sox are still a developing team. Even if 2020 doesn't go their way, there's still a ton of light at the end of the tunnel, obviously, and I think it would be foolish and maybe even detrimental to push Cease into a non-starter rule, or at least detrimental to the long term of the whole team. In a way, there's some free development time for a top arm looking to put things together after a very tough rookie season. If Ricky Renneria wants to pull Cease early from his starts, he can couch it with a philosophy of being aggressive in a 60-game season and wanting to use all the weapons he's got, just like we've been talking about. If Cease struggles and needs to be moved out of the rotation and into the bullpen, that too can get talked about in the light of a 60-game season and not have the overall path, the total future for Cease, get brought up, really. With nearly every other top prospect on the White Sox, playing time is a given. Cease is one of two guys they can mess around with. We'll get to the other in a second. But I think letting Cease work as the starter for the bulk of 2020 allows the White Sox to be versatile enough in the bullpen and keep an eye on his development in baseball as usual once 2020 ends, if 2020 ever ends. I suppose it might not. I mentioned the other guy the White Sox could mess around with when it comes to development, and I'm betting that when I did, you already screamed the name. It's Nick Madrigal. You don't mean need me to reacquaint you with one of the most unusual hitters in professional baseball. His rate of contact and lack of swing and miss is pretty much unheard of in this era. Whether that translates to success at the big league level, I have no idea. No one does, really, of course. Remember, though, we're looking for places for the White Sox to smash the gas pedal down. I keep thinking about it 
that the Sox getting all their young, talented hitters they have to fly through the league before it has time to adjust back to them, before it realizes what hit them. I know that's not how it works exactly, but it's the image that keeps jumping into my mind. Madrigal's part of that. Spring wasn't exceptional for the young second baseman, and summer camp has been better, but still not loud. My need to see Madrigal start the year is as much about the finances of baseball and my frustration with the way things are done as they are a belief that it'll help the White Sox win more games than they would with Lurie Garcia or Danny Mendick for a week and a half or whatever. But let's start with the baseball of it. Garcia and Mendick are the get-me-over-breaking-ball option for the first week of the year, and sometimes that pitch falls in for a strike, and then the pitcher feels a little more confident, maybe even gets back into the count and is able to grind things out after falling behind. Sometimes the thing ends up in the seats. It's just that you kind of know what you're getting offensively with Garcia and Mendick at this point. More so, I'm just tired of teams keeping down prospects for a week to get their defense better. There is no minor league season this year. And yeah, the White Sox have the Schaumburg squad, and Magical could get some work there, but we all know that whether it's the Sox or Cubs or Mets or Angels, top prospects get held down for salary control, for wage theft almost. So the reason of him needing to work on his defense goes out the window in 2020. For nearly all big league ready-ish prospects, the best chance to work on their defense is by playing in the majors. That goes for everyone. There's another issue that that brings up. Famously, Cubs third baseman Chris Bryant lost his grievance about his team keeping him down for a few weeks in the spring of 2015. While I apologize for bringing up the Cubs in the White Sox section, I did bring up the Sox in the Cubs section too, so we're even. Bryant lost his grievance because he was, he was always going to lose. It's what teams have always done. Precedent had been set. But I doubt teams will have the same kind of protection if a player decides to file a similar grievance about being kept down for six days at the start of this year. I don't know where the league's next CBA is going, but I wouldn't be surprised if the players don't get exactly what they want in terms of pay for players in their first six years of play. And for that reason, I think there could be more grievances. And maybe, just maybe, the ones from 2020 have more going for them than Bryant's from 2015 because there wasn't a better place for them to learn to play baseball. Lastly, there's the back end of the contract to consider. And while I don't think a new CBA will do right by the players and, you know, one way or another pay them what they're worth in their first six years of MLB work, I do think something will change. And I think that something is, is likely to slide toward the players a bit. So whether that's widening the Super 2 status or creating a different arbitration tier, something weird I haven't thought of, Madrigal's final three years under the old system just won't look the same. That means the best plan remains signing him to an extension, of course, which might be easier if you give one of the grindiest guys that ever ground a big league job at the start of the year. That brings me to the last way I think the White Sox can game the shortened season a little. I think Nomar Mazzara will need to get a quick hook. The 25-year-old outfielder once had the shine of a top prospect and still has the ability to hit the ball very, very hard. And I'm genuinely glad to read all the reporting done by people like James Fegan of The Athletic and others uh, about White Sox hitting coach Frank Minichino and, and other guys in the organization seeing something in his swing. Chris Getz would be a guy too, um, Rick Hahn, of course, seeing something in the swing that can be changed to produce more loft and get the hard hit balls off the ground and into the air where they got a chance to leave the park. 
Mazzara has been the type of player that goes off on torrid stretches and then equally astonishing cold streaks. He's never put up an OPS plus over 96. He hits much better against right-handers than left-handers career. For his career, though, it's, it's a 103 weighted runs created plus against right-handers and 59 against lefties. It's a wide split, but not enough that you'd say he kills right-handers enough to be worth a full platoon spot. Not with the production he's put up so far. With the changes, it might be different. And the White Sox certainly brought in Mazar to be a reclamation project, the scenery change guy. Someone that, over the course of 162 games, adapts to the new principles being taught to him by a new team and changes his arc. He's a free agent after the 2021 season. So I guess the hope would have been that the Sox pick their spots with Mazzara, get decent production, and hope the skill set starts to reshape in their favor. I just think a lot of that patience may have to go out the window in 2020. Not only is the offense questionable with Mazzara, the fielding isn't good either. It's worried me for a while that while the Sox outfield will have what should be top-tier defense from rookie center fielder Luis Robert, it'll be surrounded by Aloy Jimenez and Nomar Mazzara. According to outs above average kept by baseball savant, Aloy Jimenez was the third worst full-time left fielder in baseball last year. Only Andrew Benintendi and Eddie Rosario were worse, and sometimes Rosario doesn't even bring a glove with him. Norma Mazzara was much better than Jimenez while playing in right, but was still worth zero outs above average. He, Yasiel Puig, Cole Calhoun, and Tyler Nakin were the four right fielders with a bagel there. Maybe outfield positioning is better with the Sox than the Rangers, and maybe having Robert in center makes up for deficits on either side, but that's a lot to ask of a rookie, even in a 60-game sprint. Oh, hey, here's something fun. I had to edit this in order to reflect some breaking news and figured, why lie? I was recording this Wednesday morning, and as I was, I got the notification that Mazzara was placed on the 10-day disabled list with an illness. That is all the information I have. Obviously, with the pandemic on and as many players as have already tested positive for COVID across the league, let alone Yoan Mankata on the same team, I... I truly hope it's not that. I hope whatever Mazzara has clears up as quick and cleanly as possible. So I'll put a pin in it there with Mazzara. I, I didn't want to take out what I've already talked about, though, because the overall defense on the White Sox does worry me some, and I hope it's not their limiting factor. I think it's a lock that Tim Anderson breaks his three-season streak of 20-plus errors. Only playing 60 games will help there, but you get my point. I leave aside the whole problem with the way we count errors in the first place, but the Sox can't afford their shortstop leading the league in miscues in 2020. And I think Anderson's capable of getting better there, but the track record is the track record. Also, the Sox have one too many positionless sluggers for my taste. I love what the offense can and should do. I, I really do. But Edwin Encarnacion, Jose Abreu, Aloy Jimenez, Nomar Mazzara, James McCann, Zach Collins, and Yermin Mercedes just aren't defenders. They don't have a spot. I think they can get away with it, but they'll have to be careful. So I guess the Nomar Mazzara news leads me to end this way. And again, I, I don't know at this point if he's tested positive for COVID. By the time you listen to this, maybe you'll know. Hopefully it's something else. Regardless, it's been a struggle for me thinking about the ethics of playing this season, of committing so many resources to testing baseball players while so many others don't have anything close to the same access. I hope it all works out for Major League Baseball. Obviously, I, I hope the pandemic crests and 
levels off and everybody wears a mask and we keep this thing somewhat manageable until a vaccine comes around. I hope to enjoy as much baseball as I can this year. I hope you do too, without all of those thoughts seeping in. But there's some privilege in pushing that aside, even if it's for nine innings a night. Maybe we all need the opportunity to check out for a bit, though. Maybe baseball fans can find that opportunity watching their favorite team this summer, but we can't let that make us complacent or lax when it comes to how we watch out for our health and the health of others. That's it from me. I'm sorry it's on a bit of a down note, but I wanted to keep the most up-to-date White Sox news in this as I could. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Enjoy the season. Big thanks to Connor McKnight for coming through. I'm glad that I had this idea and he was down to do it. He put so much time into it. I was sitting here like, look, Connor, do 15 minutes. Talk about the Cubs and the Sox. And when I reached out to him, he's like, okay, I need about three days. I need about three days to get all of my thoughts together. And then I'll have something for you. I'm like, okay. And I told him, I said, I can be in it as much or as little as you want it. I kind of like the fact that he just said, look, let's talk for a little bit and then get out of my way. Because I wanted to give him that platform to do it. And he knocked it out of the park. I like what he had to say, especially there at the end. And him talking about the thing that we're all probably going to forget about. And maybe that maybe that is a good thing that we're able to forget about this while baseball is being played. But I'm really happy that he was available and willing to do this. And I'm, I'm glad that we could hook up and, and do some some talking because we talk. We usually talk via text. I'm one of those dudes like I've. I like texting instead of talking because I'd spend so much time talking overall. But I'm glad that he was available, and I thought that he gave really, really good breakdown, a really good breakdown of what's happening or what's going to happen in this season. And I hope that you enjoyed it, whether you skipped ahead because you were a White Sox fan or you stopped listening after the, the Cubs preview. If you stopped listening, then, damn it, you're probably not even hearing this. That's not important. What is important is that you do this for me. If you're buying a home or you're trying to refinance a home, you need to talk to my dude, David Hochberg. Team Hochberg, 56david.com is the way that you can check out the website. I say this not because he's a sponsor of this podcast. I say this because I've actually worked with David before. This is the type of person that is going to help you. He's going to answer your questions. If you have financial literacy questions, and I know that that's a big thing right now, this is the guy to talk to because he can walk you through what the best idea is for you, the best type of loan for you to get. So if you're buying a home or you're refinancing, call David Hochberg, okay? 855-56-DAVID. Do me this favor. When you do call him, make sure that you tell him that you heard about it on Connor McKnight's MLB preview on House of L. I mean, that's a lot. You could just be like, you heard connor on lawrence's podcast and they were talking about team hockberg he would love to hear that so if you call him like make his phones ring so that he that i can do stuff like this so that i can pay guys like connor to do work for me and he knocked it out of the park so if you're buying or refinancing a home 855-56-DAVID or 56david.com homeside financial is an equal housing lender 
NMLS number 1124061. I don't think too much more needs to be said. Connor pretty much said it all. And I'm glad that he was available to be a part of the pod. So thanks for listening. This was dope. I threw a couple of tricks into it. I hope that you enjoyed it. He didn't put the songs in there. I put the songs in there. I thought it made sense. And if you know, you know. I'll have another sit-down interview coming up later on this week. Tell a friend about this podcast. Rate it. Review it. Give it five stars. Write a review. It helps with placement. Shout out to everyone who's given us a review. We've got like over 1,100 reviews. And that, that means you care about this pod, and I appreciate that. I'll see you this weekend with a new interview. Peace. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.